Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Good evening and welcome to the History of Germany podcast. I'm Travis Dow. This is the first episode that I'm recording from Santa Clara, California, my new home. So I just got my microphones the other day, so I hope this works out okay. So I don't really see how this episode cannot be controversial to some degree. I'm going to talk about the history of anti-Semitism in Germany. And really, when you're doing a History of Germany podcast, you can't help but constantly feel that gigantic elephant in the room. So let's just go ahead and address it head on. My own love for history definitely comes from some of the places I lived or grew up in. My family moved to Munich when I was four, and then at some point I became aware of World War II. It wasn't long after that that it dawned on me that my grandparents fought and tried to kill my friend's grandparents, and vice versa. Well, that's weird. So you start asking questions. And Munich is a really interesting place for a young kid to ask his American parents about what happened. Munich was Hitler's favorite city. A tragic chapter in human history was written there. Dachau is a local subway station, technically S-Bahn, but not everyone knows what that is. And when you start to learn about the atrocities, but your little brain just can't actually fathom them. I mean, when I was four or six or whatever, you start asking your parents or whoever, what's a Nazi? Six million Jews? How? And probably most importantly at some point is why? And those are some of the questions I wanted answers to that started my whole sort of fascination with history in general. How could these horrible things happen? But then I go to school with their grandkids and could never actually imagine something like that even being possible. The Munich I grew up in was the most genuinely anti-racist places I have personally ever lived in. Not a single person I knew until much later in life was anti-Semite or anti-Jewish or really racist in any way. One more thing before I get started. This episode was extremely uncomfortable to research. It was uncomfortable to write, and it's going to be uncomfortable to record. It will probably be uncomfortable to listen to, but it's history, and I think everyone should know this so that the reasons behind anti-Semitism aren't a mystery. We can debunk a lot of those stereotypes or know where they came from. We can finally agree that the myths that anti-Semitism came from are unfounded and we can move on. Okay, anyways, so why? How did the atrocities in the 30s and 40s happen? The concept just seemed so incredibly foreign, like some sort of crazy alternate history. But it actually happened. And let's start with the definition so we're all on the same page. Anti-Semitism is basically the discrimination, hatred, or prejudice against Jews. It's racism. It's bigotry. It's making a lot of assumptions without really knowing that much. Okay, but where does that come from? Where does anti-Semitism come from? First of all, and how did it mutate and change over the years? How did it end up with the most efficient genocide of all time? Because it did change over time. 
There were killings of Jews throughout history. It happened in pre-Roman times, in Roman times, in the Crusades, during times of plague, pogroms, expulsion from Muslim countries at times, Soviets had anti-Jewish policies. But those are all dwarfed by what the Nazis did. And the Nazis did it for very specific ideological reasons, but very different reasons than, say, the pogroms during the plague or the Crusades, or even anti-Semitic writings from the 4th century BC in Alexandria, for instance, from pre-Christian times. This can give some people trouble or confusion because pagans, Christians, Muslims, even Soviets and Nazis, who were both anti-religious in general, hated Jews. What do they have in common that would make them hate a particular religion? Well, not necessarily anything, and that's the point. The outcome may have been the same, like hunting or discriminating Jews, but the reasons were often different. For pagans, if we go way back, you know, pre-Christian times, for pagans it was sometimes as simple as a lack of understanding of why the Jews didn't adopt their own ways. Both Romans and Greeks just sucked up other religions. There was no single Greek or Roman religion exactly. They had a pantheon, worshipped different gods, it wasn't always the same gods, and they didn't always worship in the same way. And they constantly evolved. It was more of a loose spirituality. Maybe vague isn't the right word, but their law wasn't set in stone. But the Jews' laws literally were the Ten Commandments in stone. And then you add the Torah and then the Talmud, observation of the Sabbath, and the first and foremost to, is to shun all other gods as false. They did not bend. They refused to change. They did not compromise, although they did a little bit here and there. And they also weren't the most eager to convert non-Jews. That was often enough for pagans to ultimately see them as outsiders, as quote-unquote them, which is dangerous. Okay, but now let's narrow it down to German history. Here, I'll kind of get us started in the Middle Ages. The reasons for anti-Semitism was very different than the reasons pagans had before them. After all, both Christians and Muslims are both Abrahamic faiths. The Jewish patriarchs are also Muslim and Christian patriarchs by default. Jewish holy sites are, by default, Muslim and Christian holy sites. So what gives? Here's one big difference between medieval anti-Semitism and that of the Nazis. It was religion-based. Christians did have the same patriarchs, and even the same God, but the Jews were just doing it wrong. Why didn't they just see that? Almost right from the beginning, there was religious tension. If you were a complete outsider, let's say a Buddhist, just for as an example, then you could be forgiven for not getting Jesus. After all, you were reading different holy books. Basically, no one told you what was up. But given the same evidence, why did one group of Jews accept Jesus as the Messiah and become Christians and started converting Gentiles, and another group didn't, and stayed Jews. When you're looking at the same evidence and come to different conclusions, well, now you're talking about something along the lines of heresy or sacrilege, like you're disobeying God. It's in black and white, right in front of you, and half of you are getting it and half of you aren't. What gives? Now that's dangerous. Historically, um, in religious context, that should be punished. Heresy, I mean. So some of the beliefs that medieval Europeans were held were, for example, the blood curse. The blood curse refers to a controversial uh, New Testament passage from the Gospel of Matthew that describes Pilate's court before the crucifixion of Jesus. Okay, Matthew 27, verses 24 and 25 reads, When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, his blood is on us and our children. 
So basically, Jews' crime is deicide. They literally murdered God. But that's far from all. This was not a, just a simple theological debate based on the Bible, and I'll get back to that. But let me give you a glimpse of the circumstances of being a Jew in medieval Germany and other parts of Europe was like. Jews were shunned from society. Money lending with interest, or usury, was banned by the church. Jews were forbidden to hold certain positions and roles in society, but they were exempt from the usury ban. So often, that was one of the few things Jews could do to make money. They were moneylenders, also sometimes put in the position of collecting rent and taxes and that sort of thing. As this sort of these occupations, let's say, were looked down upon, one stereotype arose, that of the greedy, money-hungry Jew. Now imagine a poor peasant. Every time he needs to pay back a debt, or rent, or taxes, he's handing money to a Jew. Okay, that certainly didn't help any reputation, but it wasn't always economic. Okay, but besides the blood curse, there are a couple other factors in medieval times. When something went wrong, Jews were the first to be blamed. This might sound familiar from some of the 20th century narratives, but let's examine this in the Middle Ages first. So just your stereotypical scapegoat. When religious fervor was worked up during the Crusades, they didn't just go off to the Levant to fight a holy war. There was a much closer target right here at home. The mobs accompanying the First Crusade, and particularly the People's Crusade, attacked the Jewish communities in Germany, France, England, and put many, many Jews to death. Entire communities like Treves, Speer, Worms, Mainz, Cologne were slain during the First Crusade by a mob army. About 12,000 Jews are said to have perished in the Rhenish cities alone between May and July 1069. Before the Crusades, the Jews practically had a monopoly of trade in Eastern products, but the closer connection between Europe and the East brought about by the Crusades raised up a class of merchant traders among the Christians, and from this time onward, restrictions on the sale of goods by Jews became frequent also. So, Though there were attempts made by bishops during the First Crusade and the papacy during the Second Crusade to stop Jews from being persecuted, both economically and socially, the Crusades were disastrous for European Jews. They prepared the way for the anti-Jewish legislation of Pope Innocent III and formed the turning point in the medieval history of Jews. There are tons of atrocities committed during the Crusades against Jews, but this episode will get too long, so I'm going to skip it. Besides, there's a whole podcast called The History of the Crusades by Sharon Isto. It's a really great show. I've listened to it all the way through, some episodes a few times. So go there for more on the Crusades. We still have a lot to cover here. Sharon, I'm sorry if I butchered your name and if you're listening. So another thing I wanted to get to was, in medieval times still, was the plague. Namely, another time Jews were used as scapegoats was during the Black Death, Europe was devastated in the 14th century. Up to half of the population of Europe vanished. And this is as a whole. So in some areas, like in, around the Mediterranean, it was much more than that. Jews were instantly blamed. There were stories that they had poisoned the wells. One rabbi, Peret, was tortured until he confessed to poisoning wells, much like the Inquisition, like they would torture you until you confessed to anything, basically. And many Jews were hunted as a, as a result. For example, some 900 Jews in Strasbourg were burned alive in 1349, before the plague even struck. So it was like preventative, you know, like it was coming towards Strasbourg. So they decided to kill all the Jews before it hit. What also didn't help was that the general population was extremely superstitious at the time. 
the Sawbones podcast, which is a medical podcast, did a great episode on plague remedies. There's basically no cause and effect there. No one had any idea what the cause of the plague was. We now know that it was fleas that were transported by rats, but superstitious Europeans avoided cats. You know, like a, a witch's familiar? Cats are basically the devil. But Jews didn't have that superstition, and their cats did a better job of keeping the rat population down. Jews did suffer from the plague, don't get me wrong, but imagine a community where everyone was getting the plague except the Jews were magically getting it less? Like, in that community, those Jews were definitely getting blamed. But the plague was just one symptom. Uh, another aspect of this, and if, if, if you were wandering around Germany during this time, and before and after, you might see some engra engravings in cathedral walls, sort of disturbing ones. And there were other places like wood carvings and all kinds of things, but um, basically these images would depict Jews, and you can tell that because of the hat, they had to wear a, hat, a special hat, and they were suckling on or fornicating with or eating the excrements of a pig. Now, obviously pork is not kosher, but as part of anti-Semitic propaganda, you would see these on church walls, like Regensburg or Wittenberg as examples, like the church where Martin Luther later preached. That was known as the Judenzau. It, it hurts to even say that word out loud um, in German, it, it, because the word was again picked up by the Nazis and used as a derogatory term. It's, it's horribly offensive. Jews were sometimes thought to be in league with the devil or had magic powers, sometimes because of these unholy acts. And it's for these reasons that they were also accused of blood libel. Blood libel is basically drinking the blood of Christian children in mockery of the Christian Eucharist. So now we're going way down the rabbit hole of what people believed you know, in the, middle, in the Middle Ages about Jews. I mean, so this never actually happened. But if a child went missing, Jews often got killed as a result, according to the myth. So if I break it down a little bit, basically the Christian child was kidnapped by Jews, tortured, engaged in a mock tribunal, and after the mock trial, the child would be crowned with thorns and crucified. The blood dripping from the cross would be collected and drank. That's the kind of stories people would make up as anti-Jewish propaganda. The story of William of Norwich, um, who died around 1144, is often cited as the first known ac accusation of ritual murder against Jews. The Jews of Norwich, England, were accused of murder after a Christian boy, William, was found dead. It was claimed that the Jews had tortured and crucified their victim. The legend of William of Norwich became a cult, and the child acquired the status of a like a holy martyr. This sort of thing was repeated throughout Europe when a child went missing. You can still see a fountain depicting a Jew eating children in Bern. It's actually quite famous. Do a Google image search. Um, look up Kindlifresserbrunnen, like child eaters fountain, or just Google famous fountain in Bern, and you'll find it. It's still in Switzerland today. One theory of the myth was a sort of curse. The believers of these accusations reasoned that the Jews, having crucified Jesus, continued to thirst for pure and innocent blood, satisfying this thirst uh, at the expense of innocent Christian children. Following this logic, such charges were typically made in spring around the time of Passover, which approximately coincides with the time of Jesus' death. So every spring you'd have a flare-up of pogroms or mob killings of Jews. Okay, you can start to see how this is escalating. And these sorts of ideas drove the Jews standing even further down in society. 
so they were forbidden to own land. There was often a quota in a town for how many could live there, basically just enough to fill the money lender needs, okay? So uh, any other Jews coming in town wouldn't even be let in. They had to wear special hats, often red or yellow. Like um, if you've watched The Merchant of Venice, for instance, you see him wearing a, like a red hat. Sometimes it's yellow. Sometimes it was a piece of cloth, like a Star of David badge. Sound familiar? That, uh, that also existed in the medieval times. Sometimes a robe. Now, sometimes Jews could purchase an exception, basically a bribe to the king. So whenever the king needed money, he could just rescind the exceptions and the Jews would have to pay all over again or wear their mark, like their robe or hat or whatever. And of course, they lived in ghettos. Not everywhere, not all the time. But if you go to Venice, you can see the part of town where the word comes from. It's an Italian term, ghetto or get, which, me which means slag or waste in Venetian, and was used in this sense as a reference to a foundry where slag was stored, which was then on the same island as the later Jewish ghetto. So that's where the word ghetto comes from. It's specific towards Jews. So let me wrap up the Middle Ages. Throughout the Middle Ages, Jews were discriminated against, expulsed from different cities, and whole countries at different times. Kind of didn't even mention that. They were kicked out of whole countries now and then. They were secluded for long enough that they have their own form of German dialect, Yiddish. Yiddish was actually a lifesaver for me once or twice, so thank God for Yiddish. But actually, it's another symptom of oppression and seclusion. But obviously, anti-Semitism didn't go away with the Reformation. I hate to do it because Martin Luther is a personal hero of mine, but he was definitely no saint. When he was younger, he understood the Jews' point of view. Here's a quote that I particularly like from Martin Luther's earlier life. Quote, if I had been a Jew and had seen such dolts and blockheads govern and teach the Christian faith, I would sooner have become a hog than a Christian. They have dealt with the Jews as if they were dogs rather than human beings. They have done little else than deride them and seize their property. When they baptize them, they show them nothing of Christian doctrine or life, but only subject them to popishness and mockery. If the apostles, who also were Jews, had dealt with us Gentiles as we Gentiles deal with the Jews, there would never have been a Christian among the Gentiles. When we are inclined to boast of our position as Christians, we should remember that we are but Gentiles, while the Jews are of the lineage of Christ. We are aliens and in-laws. They are blood relatives, cousins and brothers of our Lord. Therefore, if one is to boast of flesh and blood, the Jews are actually nearer to Christ than we are. If we really want to help them, we must be guided in our dealings with them, not by papal law, but by the law of Christian love. We must receive them cordially and permit them to trade and work with us, and they may have occasion and opportunity to associate with us, hear our Christian teaching, and witness our Christian life. If some of them should prove stiff-necked, what of it? After all, we ourselves are not all good Christians either. So that's a great quote from earlier in his life. Later in life, Martin Luther kind of flipped a 180 in a very drastic way. Um, he kind of changed his mind, let's say. In 1538, Luther published On the Jews and Their Lies, just from the title, it gives you an example, in which he says that Jews are, and this is a quote, a base, whoring people, that is, no people of God, and their boasts of lineage, circumcision, and law must be accounted as filth. They are full of the devil's feces, which they wallow in like swine. The synagogue was a defiled bride, yes, an incorrigible whore and an evil slut. He argues that there's synagogues and schools be set on fire, 
That sounds familiar. Their prayer books destroyed, rabbis forbidden to preach, homes razed, property and money confiscated. They should be shown no mercy or kindness, afforded no legal protection. And these, quote, poisonous envenomed worms, unquote, should be drafted into forced labor or, or expelled over all time. That also seems like an interesting idea uh, coming from Martin Luther, that they should be drafted into forced labor or expelled forever. Yeah. Um, he also seems to advocate their murder, writing, quote, we are at fault and not slaying them. So there's there's a big divide between what he said earlier and this, this sort of language. Um, definitely not, you know, leading a good Christian life by example. Unfortunately, because of things like this, anti-Semitism carried right on through the Reformation. And now, Reformed Lutheran Germans could keep quoting Luther when justifying their bigoted beliefs. Let that sink in for a minute, because um, that's that's big. This is where I'm getting to. It wasn't just Lutherans that quoted Luther. Nazis did it too. In almost every single National Socialist book, as it is German to be Lutheran, it is now German to be anti-Semite. You know, it just, it's all the same now. Again, Luther is a hero of mine, but no, no man is flawless. I don't have flawless heroes. I tend to separate the Luther critic of the church from Luther the anti-Semite. I mean, it's just my own bias. I, you know, I can't read some of his works with having the whole person in mind. I just wouldn't like him very much. <laughs> but that just goes to show what happens when you put a man on a pedestal. Now, the city of Nuremberg presented a first edition of Luther's On the Jews and Their Lies to Julius Streicher, editor of the Nazi newspaper Der Stürmer, on his birthday in 1937. The newspaper described it as the most radically anti-Semitic tract ever published. Well, there you go. The Nazi party displayed On the Jews and Their Lies during Nuremberg rallies. So, like, this Martin Luther's book now became a part of kind of core doctrine. In the course of the Luthertag, Luther Day festivities, the Nazis emphasized their connection to Luther as being both nationalist revolutionaries and the heirs of the German traditionalist past. But don't worry, there's still reasons I like Luther, and I will give him a second chance when I talk about the Reformation. Just remember, every coin has two sides. But after the Reformation, we start to see a shift. So two things kind of jump out at me, because I, I have to skip through a lot to, to condense this into a podcast format. I took a whole 10-week um, university class on this, so I don't know how I'm supposed to fit this all into an hour. But um, still, there's two things that jump out at me um, after, the, after the Reformation. Basically, now we have jealous merchants, because um, you know more and more of the uh, Christian merchants were getting privileges over the Jewish ones. Um, and also jealous nobility because of wealth and other reasons. And then we have a new idea, which is that of nationalism. So by this time, the Jews were fully entrenched in their roles as tax collectors, bankers, merchants. They've been doing this for centuries now. And to be able to compete with Jewish merchants, for instance, Frederick II of Prussia put a cap on the number of Jews allowed to settle in Breslau in 1744. And one from close to home. The banishment of Jews from Bohemia by the Archduchess of Austria, Maria Theresa, who later also stated that Jews had to pay for their staying in the country. But there's an even more dangerous idea emerging. What nationality were Jews exactly? If they lived in France, were they Frenchmen? If they lived in Germany, were they Germans? Because they were different than the locals and customs and occupation. They lived secluded. Were they really Germans? They don't eat bratwurst like Germans. 
And the main idea of the racial anti-Semitism, as presented by racial theorists such as Joseph Arthur de Gobineau, is that the Jews are a distinct and inferior race compared to the European nations. The emphasis was on the non-European origin and culture of the Jews, meaning they were beyond redemption, even if Jews converted to Christianity. Therefore, the modern anti-Semitism emphasized the hatred of the Jews as a race and not the Jewish religion. Okay, so here's where we start to see a shift. And nationalism, nationalism has something to do with it. So um, if, if your national allegiance isn't first and foremost to whatever, the king or the president or whatever, then where is it? It's, it's the same argument that Protestants used in America, that the papists, we could never have a papist president, a Catholic president, because a Catholic president would take orders from the pope. You know, he's not really an American. He's Catholic. Um, so, we, you know, we see the same thing over and over. But if the Jews are not Germans, then where do their allegiances lie? There is no Jewish pope. A conspiracy theory emerged that has still not to this day fully died out, as presented in the anti-Semitic hoax, The Protocols of the Elders of Zion. This was quoted by Hitler, also Henry Ford, but it's a fake document. It was first published in Russia in 1903. Now, the protocols basically describe a Jewish plan for global domination. That's the easiest way to put it. It was translated into multiple languages and disseminated internationally in, in the early part of the 20th century. Henry Ford funded printing of 500,000 copies that were distributed throughout the U.S. in the 1920s. Adolf Hitler and the Nazis publicized the text as though it were a valid document, although it had already been exposed as fraudulent in 1921 by the Times. So it was already, it was already a known hoax. But the Nazis grabbed onto it, and after the Nazi party came to power in 1933, it ordered the text to be studied in German classrooms. And basically, what it is is this. Here, so here's a quote from Wikipedia. The protocols purports to document the minutes of a late 19th century meeting attended by world Jewish leaders, the, quote, elders of Zion, who are conspiring to take over the world. The forgery places in the mouths of the Jewish leaders a variety of plans, most of which derive from older anti-Semitic canards. For example, protocols includes plans to subvert the morals of the non-Jewish world, plans for Jewish bankers to control the world's economies, plans for Jewish control of the press, and ultimately, plans for the destruction of civilization as we basically know it. And again, this hasn't quite fully died out. I mean, you still kind of hear some of this rhetoric here now and then, which, but this theory was strengthened by the leading part Jews, like the Rothschild family, had played in the European banking system. This sort of conspiracy theory now sounds pretty much like the language of your average Nazi propaganda. But there's one more piece to the puzzle that was important to Nazis. The Dolchstoßlegende, or the stab in the back myth, is basically there was another conspiracy theory that would really be detrimental to Jews under the Nazi regime. Right-wingers basically believed that Germany didn't outright lose World War I. They were sort of sabotaged. Basically, Jews, Marxist, and, quote, cultural Bolsheviks. The theme of stab in the back was articulated in 1919, most prominently by General Erich Ludendorff, one of the two top German commanders, Ludendorff definitely had stuff to say in politics at that time. He blamed the Berlin government and the civilian population for the armistice surrender of November 1918, saying that they had failed to support him, had let him down, and had proved themselves unworthy of the traditions of a fighting nations. He popularized the Dolchstoß terminology, which is like dagger, stab, whatever. 
So that's my summary. I may get back to this when I get to the 20th century, but basically this was one of the cornerstones of Hitler's rhetoric. So let's let's stop right now. Let me take stock and let's break down the differences before we get to the Nazis' atrocities, before we go on. To summarize, in the Middle Ages, we see a religiously based persecution. The Crusades, superstition regarding the plague, and things like blood libel and images like the Judenzau, the, the Jewish pig. Also, Jews were given the jobs of moneylenders and rent collectors, which leads to Jews as segregated second-class citizens that have to be identified in public, which leads to protectionism for non-Jewish merchants. Throughout this, we have pogroms, torture, expulsions, etc. Now, anti-Semitism starts to change to a more nationalistic feel, as in instead of Christians versus Jews, it becomes Germans or French or, or Irish or whatever versus Jews. And finally, we have some conspiracy theories that make it seem that Jews are actively culminating the end of society and actively sabotaging World War I. And then the Nazis come to power. So obviously, I'll get back to the Nazis later. So I'm not going to give you a blow-by-blow -blow of Hitler's rise to power. But it is in this culture where Hitler found an audience. Anti-Jewish propaganda expanded rapidly. Nazi cartoons depicting dirty Jews, quote-unquote, frequently portrayed a dirty, physically unattractive, and badly dressed Talmudic Jew, which is um, shown in religious garments similar to those worn by Hasidic Jews. Articles attacking Jews, while concentrating on commercial and political activities of prominent Jewish individuals, also frequently attacked them based on religious dogma, such as blood libel. And now once in power, the Nazis went from a theoretical rhetoric to actions. On 11th of April, 1933, the regime promulgated the first supplementary decree for the execution of the Law of Restoration of the Professional Civil Service, colloquially known as the First Racial Definition. This implementing decree stipulated that a person would be regarded as racial Jew for the purpose of the law if he had one Jewish parent or Jewish grandparent. So two years later, once Hitler and the Nazis were fully in power, he enacted the Nuremberg Laws. Now, this didn't happen in a vacuum. In fact, a weird way of looking at this is that in some ways, some of these laws just rolled back Napoleonic reforms that granted Jews emancipation and citizenship in the first place. So many of these laws were called for in the 19th century. You know, again, these Nazis didn't make up these ideas. Also, they were based on a pseudoscientific theories and works like eugenics or racial hygiene, and 1933 book by Gerhard Kittel called Die Judenfrage, The Jewish Question. In fact, the Nazi party itself didn't come out of a vacuum and has roots deep in the 19th century, but that's definitely a topic for another show. The Nuremberg Laws didn't just apply to Jews. It applied to gypsies and blacks and mixed races as well. So, for example, marriage between Jews and citizens were forbidden. Marriages between them were void, even if done abroad. Extramarital sexual relations between Jews and, quote, German or related blood, unquote, is forbidden. This is called Rassenschande, like race shame. It's another horrible Nazi term. Jews will not be permitted to employ female citizens under the age of 45 of German or kindred blood as domestic workers. Jews are forbidden to display the Reich and national flag or the national colors, and so on. There's many, many more uh, things like this. Now, at first, they were punishable by, with hard labor. Immediately, Jews lost their citizenship. Half-Jews that were Christians were allowed to keep theirs, but were later also excluded. 
So this is the first step, um, basically defining what it means to be Jewish. Like you, you have a Jewish mother or grandmother, and that makes you a citizen or not a citizen, you know, that kind of thing. Now they have the definition. People defined as Jews could then be barred from employment as lawyers, doctors, journalists. Jews were prohibited from using state hospitals. That's a big one. They could not be educated by the state past the age of 14. So once you're 14, you're you're on your own education-wise. Public parks, libraries, and beaches were also closed to Jews. War memorials were to have Jewish names expunged. Even the lottery could not award winnings to Jews. There's, there's a lot of like small things here that I came across that I, I didn't realize. Like discrimination took so many different forms. It's just mind-boggling. So then with the so-called Namensänderungsverordnung, there's a nice one German word for you. It basically the regulation of name changes which took effect of the 17th of August, 1938, Jews with first names of non-Jewish origin were required to adopt a middle name, Sarah for women and Israel for men. At the instigation of Swiss immigration official Heinrich Rotmund, passports of German Jews were required to have a large J stamped on them and could be used to leave Germany, but not to return. So the J on the Jewish passport, that was a Swiss's idea. All people who wanted Reich citizenship had to own the official Aryan certificate document. One form was to acquire an Ahnenpass, like ancestry passport, something, which required the owner to, to prove via birth or baptism certificates or certified thereof that all grandparents were of Aryan descent, quote unquote. The Ahnenpass was given out to citizens of other countries under the condition that they were of, quote, German or related blood. Okay, so regardless of where they lived, example, an Englishman or a Swede, a Frenchman, Czech, Pole, Italian, if they were of German descent, they could instantly be absorbed into the Third Reich. The obligation to wear the yellow badge introduced in German-occupied Poland in September of 39 was extended to all Jewish people living within the Nazi empire in September of 1941. Later, the death penalty was applied under the law for the protection of German blood and honor. Now, of course, you could have a sort of witch hunt. If you didn't like your Jewish neighbor, just tell the Gestapo that you saw him with a younger German woman. And in relation to the Nazis' racial purity, author and historian Luzi Davidovich wrote, In the hierarchy of Nazi racism, the Aryans were the superior race, destined to rule the world after the destruction of their racial arch-foe, the Jews. The lesser races over whom the Germans would rule included the Slavs, Poles, Russians, Ukrainians. Hitler's ra racial policy with regard to the Slavs, to the extent that it was formulated, was depopulation. The Slavs were to be prevented from procreating, except to provide the necessary continuing supply of slave laborers. Basically, Jews were now not even seen as human. They were some creature that was a danger to actual humans, the master race. Killing them is no longer murder. It's pest control. The problem was now defined in a whole new light, no longer religious or even nationalistic, but on a tedious house of cards of idealistic pseudoscience, like eugenics and racial theory and all that stuff. So the systematic approach to persecution can be seen in Kristallnacht, or Night of the Broken Glass. So Kristallnacht literally means crystal night, alluding to the enormous number of glass windows broken throughout the night, mostly in synagogues and Jewish-owned shops. Basically what happened was a German embassy official, Ernst vom Rath, was shot. He died of his wounds, and within two hours, the Gauleiter, then the SA, 
and SS joined in, all wearing civilian clothing, and started looting with hammers and pickaxes and setting fires to synagogues and Jewish shops. A classic pogrom, really, except it happened nationwide. This is mind-boggling in itself. Within two hours of a guy dying, just shops are being broken into across the country. Some 7,500 Jewish stores and businesses were damaged or destroyed, about 200 synagogues, basically every synagogue in Germany. There were 91 deaths, not counting suicides. And later, some 2,000 to 2,500 ended up in concentration camps. After this, the Jewish community was fined 1 billion Reichsmark for damages. And in addition, it cost 4 million marks to repair the windows. So they were actually, so Jews were fined for their own persecution. It's insane. And then later in the concentration camps, 62 Jews suffered punishment so severe that, and this is just one example, folks. There's <laughs> so many out there. 62 Jews suffered punishment so severe that the police were unable to bear their cries, turned their backs. They were beaten until they fell. And when they fell, they were further beaten. At the end of it, 12 of the 62 were dead, their skulls smashed, the others were all unconscious, the eyes of some had been knocked out, their faces flattened and shapeless, the 30,000 Jewish men who had been imprisoned during Kristallnacht were released over the next three months, but by then, more than 2,000 had died. The riots were only two days. But let me stop for a second. So how could something like this happen? How could a nationwide pogrom start two hours after the death of an embassy official? The way I see the Holocaust is that it's more of a trajectory. This isn't my idea. I'm sure I've heard or read this before, but I see it this way. Hitler is often overrated in basically every way. We're listening to Ray Harris Jr.'s History of World War II podcast. It's obvious to me that Hitler would have been a nobody in the age of Twitter. Everyone that entered the room with him saw he was a lunatic. I mean, he would yell and scream and throw a tantrum and drop to the floor and gnaw the carpet. That's a paraphrasing directly from uh, Ray Harris's podcast. Can you, can you believe that? Like, one tweet while that's happening and it's over. His credibility would just be gone, evaporated. But there was no Twitter. Oh, and follow me on Twitter, by the way. It would have stopped Hitler. So the one thing that Hitler was a master at was getting everyone beneath him to fight to stay in his good graces. He just spouted rhetoric, and it's Goebbels that started the Kristallnacht. Because why? Because he thought it would make Hitler proud, like it would impress him. Hitler didn't come up with the concentration camp idea per se, or the logistics, or the bureaucracy. Others did it to please him. Others would put plans on his desk, and the most radical got you know, put into effect. Hitler just laid down the foundation and started the trajectory. I would say that the most evil Nazi was Reinhard Heydrich. He was also part of Kristallnacht, and we did an episode on him for the Bohemian podcast, so I won't repeat it all here, but he's the one that basically looked at the Czech population. He was the uh, Reich's protector of, of Bohemia and Moravia, and he basically looked at all of the Czech population and said, eh, 50% we can Aryanize, the other 50%, well, and he was the guy at the Wannsee conference that basically said, when talking about the final solution to the Jewish question, well, if we deport them, then we just have to catch them again later. And then what? Better we just execute them all now. And it pleased Hitler. The logic of a cold-blooded killer who alone couldn't have done much, but as part of this trajectory, well, 
along with 5 million gypsies, Poles, communists, homosexuals, Soviet prisoners of war, and the mentally and physically disabled. Six million Jews died in the Holocaust. By the spring of 1944, up to 8,000 people were being gassed every day at Auschwitz. I have a quote from Primo Livi here. He says, Monsters exist, but they are too few in number to be truly dangerous. More dangerous are the common men, the functionaries ready to believe and to act without asking questions. This, this is kind of goes back to the trajectory thing. Like if you have a serial killer, he's going to kill 30 people. That's fine. But if he has an army of people underneath him, all following orders, that's where it gets dangerous. The Holocaust itself will probably be another series of episodes. I think I've had enough for today. But one thing always sticks in my mind when I talk about this or when I wrote this outline is I once listened to a Holocaust survivor that came to my university and tell his story. He made an interesting observation. So how does something like this happen? How do the logistics and bureaucracy of a modern nation come together and create the greatest atrocity of all time? Well, no one is born racist. The Holocaust survivor had a set of slides that he was showing as he was talking, and you could kind of see a line of progression. At first, funny piece of graffiti written on a Jewish shop owner's wall, a, just a joke really. Then a Kristallnacht or some other such event, you see people laughing while someone breaks a window. Haha. <laughs> Another slide, a few men are laughing while kicking a man on the streets, maybe to death. But, but it's funny to them, like it's, it's a joke to them. And a few slides later, like they're not, you know, I mentioned earlier in the quote that some people were, didn't have the stomach for this and turned away. But many just, if, if they dehumanized the idea that, that what they were doing was to another person, if they were just kicking something or they were just kicking, I mean, it was just, they just, you know, you take the action at its most abstract and turn it into a joke. I've heard similar stories of Americans in Baghdad, so, you know, it's not, it's not just Germans, but it often starts with a joke. And a few slides later, you see men so skinny they look like skeletons with skin coming out of a train, while Wehrmacht guys are throwing snowballs at them, laughing. Haha, <laughs> that was a good one, right? It's, it's a joke. It always starts as a joke. And it can be a slippery slope. As you get desensitized to what is actually happening, or what just was said, and you just keep going along. Let me tell you, I have a messed up, dark sense of humor. There may be a time and a place, but there is also always kind of going too far. I love me a good old Winnie quote, so let me go ahead and leave you with a quote by Winston Churchill. Quote, Some people like the Jews, some do not. But no thoughtful man can deny the fact that they are, beyond any question, the most formidable, and most remarkable race which has appeared in the world. Well, I think in making sure that this kind of thing never happens again, it is important to never forget what did happen and also why it happened. A really cool announcement actually is that the Bohemian podcast, the other show I co-host, which is all about Czech Republic, Czech history, culture, whatever, we started a YouTube channel and we take you around downtown Prague. So I kind of give you a tour. Um, it's very short videos. I think there's maybe two or three clips up right now. One is of the Templars history in, in, uh, so you can find this on YouTube, look for Bohemican and, or it's on the bohemican.com website. So one's on Knights Templars, one's on alchemy, obviously, but we actually show you stuff. So in video format, go take a look at that. And uh, so, sorry for the heavy topic tonight, folks, but um, it is one that's dear to my heart and very important to me. So I hope you enjoyed it and uh, aren't too bummed out right now. 
and have a good night, folks. And thank you for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.